Hello, and welcome to New Books in Russian and Eurasia Studies on the New Books Network. My name is Diana Dehanova, and I'll be your host today. And today I'm speaking with Dr. Elliot Bornstein, author of Plots Against Russia, Conspiracy and Fantasy After Socialism. Dr. Bornstein is professor of Russian and Slavic studies, collegiate professor in the Faculty of Arts and Sciences, acting chair of East Asian Studies, and senior academic convener for the Global Network at New York University. He's also the founder of the Jordan Center's All the Russias blog, where one of his current books in progress, Russia's Alien Nations, is currently being serialized. Plots Against Russia, which we'll be discussing today, was published just this year by Cornell University Press. The book is described as a study of paranoid, conspiratorial, and extremist trends in Russia's media, film, and fiction since the collapse of the Soviet Union. Elliot, thank you very much for speaking with us today. Now, in the preface to your book, you state the following, and I'm quoting, uh, this is an uncomfortable book to write. It is also the book that I've been preparing to write my entire adult life, although there's no way I could have known it. Uh, could you talk about what you meant there and how this book represents, if I understand correctly, the culmination of your scholarly work so far? Sure. Um, when I said that it was what I'd been working on my entire adult life, part of it was um, an acknowledgement that I have an attraction to um, fringe phenomena um, and to news of the weird and so on and so forth just in my own life. And so that, in fact, I, I try to to develop a kind of healthy distrust of that instinct of my own when it comes to my scholarly work in Russia because I get concerned that I'm just chasing after something very strange. Um, but it is also the case that since I um, was in Moscow during the last couple of years of my graduate work while writing my dissertation in 1992-1993, I was there um, at this the perfect time to start uh, watching some of the most interesting phenomena of post-Soviet culture develop, which led to my second book. But along the way, I kept um, reading uh, fringe newspapers, reading Zin and then Zaftra, um, the extreme right-wing red-brown coalition newspapers um, from the 1990s, um, buying all of these very strange pamphlets and books and so on and so forth. And then eventually when, when stuff moved online, following these, uh, these phenomena online and, of course, reading so much of the popular fiction that came out. And when I was working on my last book, Overkill, I had included a chapter called Plots Against Russia about, conspir- about conspiracy and paranoia and was advised that it didn't really fit the book, which was fine with me. And I really didn't think I was going to be writing a conspiracy book for quite some time, um, largely because I was concerned that I might actually be um, distorting uh, Russian reality or even Russia's media reality. But enough time passed and sadly, I no longer had that concern. Well, going off of that, you're very cautious from the very beginning of your book uh, to avoid sort of simplistic or demonizing or orientalizing views of Russia, just uh, what the study of the topics might suggest, and you describe it as the dangers of exoticizing the other. So could you talk a bit more about how your caution around this issue informs your work and especially your research in this book? Sure. Well, for one thing, I'm always reminding myself, and I've gotten really into the mental habit of when I'm encountering um, a phenomenon in this case related to conspiracy, that strikes me as particularly um, bizarre um, or um, hard to credit, I then go back and remind myself of something equally strange in my own native a native um, context here in, in the United States um, to, get, to get in the habit of reminding myself that um, that strangeness and, and extreme thought and um, belief in things that one might think are impossible to believe in. These are hallmarks of uh, of most cultures. Um, so I I'm try to be very careful, really, about that, and then also to um, to to the extent that I can um, gauge how prominent a particular phenomenon or idea is. That's a problem because I don't really engage in that kind of um, 
empirical research and I don't go looking for statistics and don't particularly trust statistics in general and in Russia in particular. Um, but I do try to, um, to keep in mind what, what's out there that's not strange and conspiratorial. Mm-hmm. And you talk about your work really being more on the side of discourse, right, than what's actually uh, happening, sort of uh, documenting history. Oh, absolutely. I feel like um, for the past 20 years or so, I, I, I practically started every talk saying I'm not talking about real life or real people. I'm not doing surveys. Um, in a sense, the view, the the uh, what I have is not really a bird's eye view. I have a kind of um, internet couch potato surfer um view on things. That is, um, if you ask yourself what view you would get of a culture simply by consuming media and not necessarily by going outside and talking to people, um, that's the material that I'm looking at. And I'm aware that there's a whole world outside of the internet, apparently. Um, and that, but that's not a world that I'm not, that I'm actually studying. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this connects to the the process of assembling the research for this book, right? And the process that you're using now for your next book. Um, and it started out as a blog. So can you talk a little bit about the development of the project and then how it took its present form? Oh, sure. So the blog thing came about, um, it is really largely, even though it's a public-facing thing, and I, I like to think that some people are reading it, um, the blog thing is largely about um, setting up a device that disciplines me and makes me work. Because what I discovered when I started the All the Russias blog, one, was that I really, really liked doing it, um, and two, that this was a format that um, works very well for me and seems really natural for me and feels like the format that I should be working in all the time. Um, everything about all my approach to pretty much any set of work tasks or things I want to do is to break them down to small units um, and do a little bit of them at the time. That's how I read as well. And so once I started writing the blog, um, just on general Russian themes, it occurred to me that, you know, I spent so many years of my life not writing whatever book that I say I'm writing, um, that if I were to move to this sort of format, I would actually get a lot of work done. And and I did. Um, Also, I was hoping to get some publicity, of course, and to get um, feedback along the way. And I've gotten a little of that as well. But just as I was saying that I don't really know that my research isn't about what's going on in the world, but going on in the media, um, the corollary to that is I don't you know, I don't really know who's actually reading the blog. Um, I know a few people. I don't know if it's only a handful of people, if it could be more. But um, for the for my own purposes of getting my own work done, it, it doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. That's a great approach, actually. I think maybe some of our early career academics and graduate students might copy you on that. Um, so let's get into some of the key terminology here. So the first one, of course, is conspiracy and conspiratorial thinking. So how do you define it? And you're you're very careful to specify that conspiratorial thought lies on a spectrum. Right? Yes, thank you. So that, that's a really complicated one, because there is a large body of conspiracy scholarship going back, starting roughly around the post-World War II era. Um, and it's it's large, but it's actually manageable to to um, really read basically all of it. Um, but what you see is a certain set of trends, um, a certain set of controversies that you really have to skirt around. Um, and one of the big ones is the connection between conspiracy and conspiracy here being, um, I would say, conspiracy is a bunch of people or entities working together to do something in secret and something that presumably is not something that you would want. People point out that birthday, that surprise parties are conspiracies, but no one calls them that because people don't tend to be upset by surprise parties. But the connection between conspiracy and paranoia, which I think is an easy one to make um, because paranoia, of course, if you set aside its most extreme clinical version, um, paranoia is 
a tendency to overinterpret, to make too many connections, and to assume that nothing is random. Um, that works very well with um, a conspiratorial mode of thought. But this really, um, the uh, the birth of all this, the primal scene of all of this is. Um, Richard Hofstetter's famous essay and book, um, the on the paranoid style, um, which he a lecture he delivered on the day that Kennedy was shot, actually, um, and this essay, which is hugely influential, in fact, has gotten a real revival in the Trump age for I think obvious reasons, um, talks about um, how there is a a paranoid style in politics, in American politics in particular, that um, that comes around um, rather cyclically, um, and understanding that paranoid style can help you understand what's going on with the politics. So this is an argument he made in Harper's originally, and it's an argument that is one of those arguments that immediately makes sense, I think, when you read it, and you don't need to be a scholar to follow it, read it, and see that it makes sense, which is exactly the sort of argument that the scholars then immediately want to take apart, um, in part because it, it looms so large, and in part because, quite rightly, I think, um, a lot of scholars felt that this connection between conspiracy and paranoia pathologizes people who believe in conspiracy theories um, and basically defines them as essentially mentally ill. And I can certainly see why um, there's been so much of a hygienic impulse to to separate the two. But for me, I argue that there's no reason to separate um, conspiracy and paranoia that, that carefully as long as you realize that you are using the word paranoid, the word paranoid, not in any way as a medical or psychiatric diagnosis, but um, in what I'm calling a mode or even a stance, a mode like irony, um, or really a, a point of view that you can have and don't have to have um, your entire life. I can go into that if you want, but that, that's that 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 distinction between kind of a long-term paranoia and what I call the paranoid subject position is the theoretical contribution that I'm hoping um, other scholars of conspiracy end up noticing. Um, yes. Could you say a little bit more about that, the paranoid subject position? Sure. So um, I, with this book, I start off, first of all, with a notion that everything, that um, our entire worlds are, our worlds are constructed by narrative. We understand the world through narrative. Um, it makes psychological sense to be constantly constructing narrative because narrative is about taking a bunch of things that might not seem connected and seeing how they're connected so that everything is part of, you know, one big story. Um Paranoia certainly fits in with that quite well. And what I've done here is I followed, um, I don't want to stress this too much because I really believe in in theory inflecting someone's thought rather than inflecting someone's writing so much, but um, I'm following a move that Derrida made when he was um, getting into an argument about uh, um, Austin speech act theory um, when he was arguing that you, you have to be able to um, imagine unserious speech acts in order to talk about serious speech acts. Um, when I'm talking about a paranoid subject position and conspiracy, I argue that in fact it is fiction about paranoia and stories about paranoia, stories about conspiracy, I'm sorry, I should say, that condition us to be able to imagine conspiracy as something that's really possible. Um, so the, the very fact that you can watch an hour of, say, the X-Files and for the course of that hour um, suspend disbelief and live in a kind of epistemological mindset in which aliens are possible, conspiracies are possible, and then in the next hour you'll watch something else and that's not possible, suggests that we are always able to adopt a conspiratorial mindset when it's necessary or when it's useful or handy, and then dispose of it a minute later. Um, so that there's no need to diagnose someone as paranoid, there's no no need to um, see every manis- manifestation of conspiratorial thought as a symptom of a, of, um, a complete conspiratorial worldview, that in fact we all 
adopt conspiratorial modes and drop them back and forth over the course of our day. And that's what makes it possible for some to believe in um, conspiracy in a much more committed fashion, in a much more sustainable fashion. Um, but again, um, I think one of the mistakes that, that intellectuals make and we talk, people talk about that a lot lately, in particular when talking about politics, is thinking of everything in terms of rationality. Um, and then when you see a breakdown of a kind of rational explanation, you show how something is not working. But actually, this is really a matter of um, affect, emotion, habits of thought, and the fact that you can um, be conspiratorial for a little while and, and not be conspiratorial right after that, um, to me, just seems very, very human and very discursive. Mm-hmm. So what is it about post-Soviet Russia that makes the uh, conspiratorial subject position one that is so often taken up? Oh, that, that, that is a great question. And I would say that it's um, part of a, a longer process that um, that has made Russia slash the Soviet Union in the past several decades a great hope for conspiracy theory. Again, as I'm saying that, not to suggest that other places are not. Certainly the United States is a great um, breeding ground of conspiracy theory, but I think um, coming out of different sources and for different reasons, at least initially. So um, in the post-war era, the post-Stalin era, I should say, in the Soviet Union, um, uh, conspiratorial thought was enabled, I think, um, by the general um, the general lack of reliable information um, in the Soviet Union and the widespread assumption that you're not being told everything. And in fact, every time there is a revelation of some past crime that is finally doled out, um, instead of telling, letting you know finally for the truth, it just reminds you of this other things being kept from you. So the restriction on information in late Soviet times um, facilitated um, conspiratorial thought. Then with Glasnost, with the opening up of the floodgates, um, that did a couple things. It reinforced the idea that there's information that's being held from you and there could still be more being held from you. And it also made actual conspiratorial tracts and, and novels and so on and so forth and films available for mass consumption. Um, so that by the time you get to the post-Soviet era, you have these long-standing habits of conspiratorial thought, um, but you have it in an informational ecosystem that is almost, or at least until recently, almost the opposite of the one you had in late Soviet times, and much more like the informational ecosystem that facilitates conspiracy here in the United States. There's so much information out there, so many competing sources of information, and so many competing narratives that each one relativizes the other um, and makes it possible to just pick and choose or assume that they're all, that they're all wrong. Uh, now, there's two other terms that are important here to your structuring of uh, conspiratorial mindset, and one is melodrama. So what role does melodrama play here? So melodrama I for, was actually something that was one of the first things I came up with back when this was part of, of the other book. Um, melodrama really um, came to my mind when I was thinking particularly of the novels um, and films that I was looking at where um, conspiratory takes, conspiracy takes place. Because the great thing about melodrama is, you know, when you think of melodrama, you think of, you know, uh, big emotions and um, twists and turns of plot. But as um, a lot of scholars, including um, Peter Brooks in particular, in his melodramatic imagination argues, um, melodrama actually serves as this very um, useful and very schematic testing ground of ideas. Um, and it is a way in which um, you can have good and evil fighting, and of course good is supposed to triumph, but what gets coded as good and what gets coded as evil, um, that's something that can depend on the, the cultural context, the author, and so on and so forth. And what I found was that the basic fictional conspiratorial plot, and even I would say beyond that, the kind of general political 
theoretical conspiratorial plot um, is quite melodramatic because you have good guys and bad guys. The bad guys are so bad that they're telling you their bad ideas and they know they're bad because they're just reveling in them. Um, and it's up to the good guys to save everybody from these bad guys. Um, so it's it's incredibly schematic and and it's it's such a big part of our of worldwide popular entertainment that it would make sense that this also can be compelling as um as a political thought through narrative and that feed, feeds in very well into Russia's uh sort of particularly in the last 10 years its role perceived role of a world leader right of the vanguard of traditional values for example mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, and that that as you said that is a it is a um, quite recent one, but um, what that does is it's a variation on a long-standing um, conspiratorial nationalist trope, which is to see Russia and Russia as um, surrounded by enemies that want to destroy it. Um, and the reason the enemies want to destroy Russia, that those can really vary depending on who's seeing the enemies, who the enemies are supposed to be, um, what time this is all taking place in. Um, and now the traditional values thing. Uh, works on multiple levels. One, for one, it can actually um, serve as a way for Russia to find allies in the world, um, but it also can justify why Russia must, why Russia should reasonably perceive of itself as a target, and why um, why um, people hate Russia so much. Uh, now, the other term here, uh, and this leads into kind of the next concept, is you talk about uh, framing the book in the lens of fantasy, right? That's in the title, to examine conspiracy thinking contemporary Russia and frame your questions around contemporary historical narrative in terms of fantasy. So what role does fantasy play in understanding discourse around Russian history and identity today? Mm-hmm. Okay. So um, some of that is a, is a sort of larger um, claim that, I, that I'm trying to make um, through this book, but one that I don't think will be noticed outside of um, the small readership that this book is going to get, which is that um, we tend to think that people assume they live in a, in a world that looks like the world of a realist novel, um, and that realism is the default both for our lives and for, um, and for fiction, when in fact that is historically recent and not even necessarily ac- um, accurate. I'll, a lot of people, depending on their um, religious worldviews, their beliefs in in, um, in phenomena that we might call um, New Age or pagan or superstitious, um, the worlds that they are walking around in are not the worlds of realism. And um, I wanted to decenter realism in fiction um, by arguing that realism is just a version of fantasy that doesn't have magic in it. Um, because once you start representing the world around you in a text, in a narrative, you're just coming up with an approximation. And that approximation is a fantasy. Um, it could have magic. Uh, if it doesn't have magic, then it allows people to believe that it might actually be more real. But with these ideological fictions that I'm looking at, some of which have magic and some of which don't, um, these um, are clearly fantasies, um, not so much in the um, immediately, obviously, in the in the way we think of, say, with epic fantasy, um, but fantasies and 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 to an extent melodramas that take the world you see around them, um, rewrite that world in ter- in terms of a particular, often conspiratorial ideological framework, and then try to convince you that what you're reading is not a fantasy; it's realism, and um, that in fact. Um, this fantasy of what the world is, is actually what the world is. And by the end of reading the book, in a sense, you should be converted to the belief that this ideological fantasy is fact. Mm-hmm. And that feeds into this idea of the imaginary country, right? You refer to Russia as an imaginary country. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, and I would say every country is an imaginary country, and I'm not um, by any means original um, in, in talking about that. But um, 
part of this is, of course, um, yet another um, uh, way out for me. And that just as I'm not talking about how people are really living their lives, when I'm talking about Russia, I'm um, much less talking about what is actually, you know, the economics of the country, the governmental structure, but it's the Russia that is being represented to itself through through the mass media. Um, and that is a Russia, just as um, as an American imagination of America, that is always only going to approximate whatever is actually happening in what we would call the real world. Um, and it is the imaginary Russia that is much more of a contested place when it comes to um, politics and ideology um, than... Um, than, in, than in many cases the real Russia is, if we're not talking about, say, fights among you know oligarchs for money. Mm-hmm. Now, um, what are some of the sort of, let's say, non-negotiable foundational or cultural myths that underpin the dominant historical narratives in Russia? Uh, and is it fair to say that Russophobia is kind of a unifying factor here? Russophobia is a- is absolutely the unifying factor. I mean, as a, as a term, it only comes up in the 19th century and really becomes current... Um, starting in the last half of the previous century. Um, but this notion of this irrational, reflexive hatred of Russia that is simply not going to go away, um, that is incredibly useful. It is also, I would say, flattering um, because people are bothering to hate you. Um, one of the things that I, I, that I think um, is really remarkable, what's happened in the past couple of years, is um, this whole Russiagate stuff and all of that um, is really reassuring to the Russian cons- to, to Russian conspiratorial mindsets, um, not only because it looks like conspiracy, but because we in the West are paying attention to Russia. Um, what Russophobia presupposes is not only that everybody hates Russia, but that everybody thinks Russia is important enough to hate. And I think one of the most offensive things Obama said um, when it came to Russia um, was that it's not a world power. Um, and I think, and I can see why he said that. There are many reasons why he would say that, but but that is the sort of thing that if you think twice about, you don't say because it's actually, um, in a sense, a challenge to prove that you are a world power. Um, and so hostility, hostility towards a Russia that we think is a powerful enemy um, is much more um, uh, friendly <laughs> um, than simply the benign neglect of Russia or not so benign neglect of Russia that usually, of course, that has usually characterized um, the American media and political culture for um, huge chunks of time since the collapse of the Soviet Union. Mm-hmm. So would you say that uh, the rise in conspiratorial thinking in Putin's third term is connected to this uh, desire to reinforce Russia as a threat? I think that um, Putin's regime's use of um, conspiratorial discourse is related to that. Um, It's remarkable how much this stuff has gone from margin to center um, in the past several years. It was happening slowly over the first decade of the 21st century, but really dramatically kicked into high gear um, with uh, with Putin's re-election. Just as there is this emphasis on traditional values, um, the embracing of a conspiratorial worldview um, is uh, hugely useful politically. Um, you know, for years, there'd been talk about the need for a national idea. Yeltsin um, had a committee that came up with nothing. Um, uh, Surkov came up with um, sovereign democracy. And conservatism seems to kind of fit it. But if you take together traditional values, um, the notion that Russia is under um, is uh, under attack from all sides, that's not an idea, but it is enough. Um, those things are enough of a, of a national story um, to, to be a a unifying fantasy, or at least I think that's what um, the regime is hoping, and it does seem to work fairly well. 
Uh, now, in thinking about the roots of uh, a lot of these conspiracies and sort of the key adversaries, right, anti-Semitism plays a really large role, uh, particularly the, the source text of the Protocols of the Elders of Zion, but of course it goes back much further. So could you talk a little bit about the role that anti-Semitism plays as well as its limitations in understanding Russian conspiratorial thinking? Sure. So anti-Semitism is, of course, foundational to um, a lot of Western conspiratorial thought um, going back in particular to the Protocols, which is, you know, a wonderful Russian plagiarized contribution to world conspiratorial lore. Um, but there are obvious reasons why um, Jews would be a group that would be particularly susceptible or particularly useful um, for this kind of narrative. That is a group of people who who um, can look sort of like you, but not entirely like you, a state within a state, a bunch of, a group of people who are not, um, who won't eat with you, won't eat the same foods as you, but are, are everywhere. So therefore don't have, you know, local loyalties. I mean, all of this is really well established in the literature uh, on anti-Semitism. Um, and it is particularly um, Jews as boundary crossing people. And of course, connected with um, the institutions of modernity um, that make them, um, a great target for this kind of um, conspiratorial uh, narrative, um, which is particularly well embodied and stupidly embodied in the Protocols of the Elders of Zion, which is just so badly written. It's just lots of fun, um, if it weren't for the fact that it was so um, destructive. And um, what I see with that is that there are a couple things that go on. One is that um, maybe because the... Um, sort of master text of conspiracy for the, um, the 20th century and beyond um, is the Protocols of the Elders of Zion. Um, the result is that structurally, a lot of conspiracies, if a conspiracy has an international enemy, even if it's not named the Jews, it is based on what it is homologous to the role the Jews play in the um, Protocols of the Elders of Zion. So um, it all, I mean, it matters if it's Jews, but if it almost doesn't matter because wh whoever is the enemy in that structure basically is taking on the role of Jews. Um, and what was fascinating to me in the 1990s was um, that there would be a lot of conspiratorial fiction that would use the structures of, um, of these old fashioned conspiratorial narratives often involving not, not calling things Masons, but groups that are kind of like the Masons in particular, I'm thinking of the Bieshni mad dog series that I um, read to death and overkill um, for years, they're fighting this um, secret cabal that's not identified as Masons, not identified as Jews. And then after the NATO bombing of Yugoslavia, when the um, political culture turned on a dime and America became enemy number one, um, all of a sudden that uh, that secret cabal that had been in so many books was now the secret cabal of Jews and Masons. Um, so you have a structure that doesn't have to be anti-Semitic, but could be filled with anti-Semitic content at just about any moment. Now, let's talk about some of the common conspiracy theories that have been particularly influential that you mentioned. So you mentioned three, and we can just sort of do an overview. So there's the Harvard Project, the Dulles Plan, and the Houston Project. Yeah. So um, the Harvard Project is is my personal favorite. It's um, was um, concocted by this emigre, Georgi Klimov, who had actually worked um, in the real Harvard Project, which was a study of um, Soviet emigres uh, in the United States. It was basically a sociological um, survey. But what he turned it into in his political tracks and his novels, between which there's a very small difference, um, is this idea that Harvard, run by Jews, of course, and homosexuals, because Harvard Jews and homosexuals are basically all the same thing, um, are trying to have taken over Russia. Um, they were behind the revolution. They're um, continuing to try to destroy Russia, and they're trying to do this on a genetic level by um, destroying the purity of Russian DNA. Um, and 
So this idea, this is very, very fringe and wasn't published in um, the Soviet Union until the last years of the Soviet Union's existence, but it was the sort of thing that, that um, spread, you know, by, by rumor mill for a bit, um, and then found its way onto the internet and also became um, a uh, big component of this trilogy of conspiratorial novels at the end of the 1990s by this man named S. Norka. Um, so, but the Harvard project imagines that, um, that the West Jews, Harvard are trying to destroy Russia. Then the Houston project, which, um, is, um, imagined sometime in the 1990s by a bunch of different sources, largely on the internet, um, suggests that actually now that the Harvard project has worked and destroyed the Soviet Union, the Houston project, its successor is going to destroy Russia. Um, and it is focused largely on, um, uh, dismantling the Russian Federation and making lots of little statelets um, and making Siberia available for a takeover by the West, both for the use of its natural resources and because it's a place where um, the one place in the world that's going to survive after um, global cataclysm. The Dulles plan is the most famous of them. Um, it actually comes from, it's based on, um, it's based entirely on a work of fiction, a monologue um, uh, in this novel that became the basis of Vietnam Zof, The Eternal Call, a very popular miniseries on Soviet television, um, with this monologue where a Nazi is explaining how he's going to um, undermine the Soviets by um, ruining their values and getting young people to, uh, to like trash instead of high culture and to become immoral. Um, this Nazi speech becomes the plan by Alan Dulles uh, um, of the uh, um, American of American um, spy and intelligence fame. Um, this is just completely put in the mouth of Dulles, and the idea is that America is trying to ruin the Soviet Union and then Russia, but initially the Soviet Union, by getting um, young people to you know, listen to rock and roll and um, buy blue jeans and so on and so forth, and and turn their backs on the um, the truths of their fathers. Um, so, what is great about the Dulles plan? and the Harvard plan too, but particularly the Dulles plan, is that it takes um, conspiracy, anti-Russian conspiracy, and sees it primarily in the, in the realm of information and culture, and therefore um, as a project of a kind of brainwashing um, that the West is trying to do on um, the Soviet Union slash Russia. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, you mentioned the, the issue of homosexuality and uh, Judaism all sort of being like one giant boogeyman. So I wanted to transition to uh, the, the idea of gender ideology featuring so prominently in conspiracy thinking. Um, so can you talk a bit about why is homosexuality understood as an attack on Russian culture and values and how it's used to sort of uh, frame this inimical relationship with the mm-hmm. West? I mean, the, the short answer is actually now homosexuality and Judaism um, for uh a lot of the conspiratorial world are not the same thing. And, and in terms of structural homologies, the um, LGBT people are, are in a sense the new Jews as the new internal enemies. Um, <coughs> excuse me. <coughs> now the question is, you know, why and why now, right? Because it's not as if there's a great recent history of Soviet or Russian love and embracing of LGBT people. Um, in Soviet times, of course, a male homosexuality is criminalized and lesbianism um if it was noticed, was um, uh, could lead to women being sent um, to uh, mental hospitals. Um, but in um, in the early 1990s, all of that was decriminalized, and for a good 10 years, you had a period when, again, it wasn't like um, uh, Russian mass media, Russian people you'd speak to were brimming with love for LGBT people. Far from it. But there wasn't there wasn't a concerted campaign against LGBT people, and there was room to talk about. Um, how um, how queer people could be 
people like anyone else and people deserving of rights and people um, and people that you might know. Um, there was a lot of cynicism about any public figure who came out as gay, that they're probably just doing it to um, get publicity, you know, like Tatu, the girl group. Um, but um, but really, it, it wasn't a matter of a great deal of, of, of venom. Um, so for this to change uh, in the 21st century, um, arguably, this took efforts by, by um, some groups of people. The irony here is as I start to talk about efforts by groups of people, I sound like I'm talking about a conspiracy. Um, and, and, and I'm aware of this um, because structurally, a lot of what happens looks sort of like a conspiracy. For one thing, it's, um, it is pretty well known, and, and um, I see more and more um, writing about this really every week, that... Um, the uh, the American right wing um, evangelical um, organizations have been very active around the world in promoting um, anti LGBT legislation and promoting um, just a kind of general hostility to anything that doesn't look like their notion of the traditional family. Um, they've certainly been very very active in funding the anti abortion movement and so on and so forth. So just as in Uganda and other places in Africa, but also in um, Central Europe and in Russia, um, there's been a lot of um, money and a lot of exchange of ideas and a lot of joint conferences by these sort of groups. So that's helped. Then um, there is the rise of a, of a particular kind of um, political political and politicized Russian orthodoxy. Um, not all of Russian orthodoxy, of course, but one that, um, but a, a view of it that's, that sees that Russian orthodoxy should be a part of um, political life, public life, and that, um, and that people should be living their lives and the legislation should be matching um, the views on the family in the Russian Orthodox Church. And this is, a, this is also a way for some politicians to get themselves known. So what happens is um, you start to see legislation against so-called gay propaganda happening in, um, in cities and regions and eventually gets taken up in, um, in the Duma. And um, the hostility to LGBT people becomes the latest version the, the um, latest use, useful thing to be co-opted into this narrative of um, of Western hegemony, because um, when the wet, when people from the West keep talking about you know uh, marriage equality and LGBT rights, it's very easy to frame this as something alien, something being imposed on on Russia. Russia supposedly, according to these people, doesn't have traditions of of, of homosexuality. It's being brought in, and this fits in so well with all these other established conspiracy theories that basically you end up with. Um, this idea, that in a sense, that that um, the West is trying to make Russia gay, um, and then you have all of this incredible paranoia just about the rainbow symbol, which is just really funny because there've always been rainbow symbols. Rainbows are pretty, and kids like rainbows. Um, but now there's like this hunt for rainbow symbolism that that could be trying to turn your children gay. Yeah, that part of your book really reminded me of during the World Cup when people were taking undercover uh, rainbow pictures and nobody would notice for rainbow until they were posted online. Yeah. Uh, so in terms of the um, the idea that Russia or America is trying to make Russia gay, there's also this critique of liberalism, right? That over over in America or in the West, they have this liberal approach to politics that then creates this, these really harmful social trends. So can you talk a little bit more about this critique or fear of liberalism and particularly how it's used by the current sure. administration? So um, the fate of liberalism in Russia um, has some parallels with, with what's happened and been happening um, with liberalism in the United States and Western Europe, um, but it developed at a different pace and for, for somewhat different reasons. So um, 
at the end of Pedistroika in the 1990s, you have um, a regime, Yeltsin's regime, and a set of reforms that are identified as liberal. And as we know, liberal can mean two things that don't have to, at least two things that don't have to have very much to do with each other. One is liberalism as economic policy, which is actually uh, more like, you know, the, the Washington consensus or neoliberalism. It's, it's Thatcher and Reagan. Um, and it's not a liberalism that's about procedural democracy or about, um, or about, um, equality of rights. Um, that liberalism also appears at the same time, but there's no reason to expect anyone to, um, any average or even very well-educated person who's learning, who's being exposed to both these things at the same time, to be able to distinguish between the two. Um, and neither of them is possible, is, is I'm sorry, neither of them is popular. Um, economic liberalism uh, led to the um, to the destitution of a huge portion of the population. So obviously that's not going to be looked upon very well. And um, then at the same time, you have um, suddenly this uh, um, uh, attention being paid to people like LGBT people to, for, for, whom, to whom, for whom a lot of people um, wouldn't even think of as like um, something to be concerned about. Um, and this change in values that really disturbs people. So you end up with this kind of... Um, liberal bogeyman um that is bad on just about every front um and also so everything about the 1990s um becomes associated with liberalism whatever liberalism means and one of the things that putin um and people around him did extremely successfully um as they're um as they're showing why putin is good and why um why this particular system is better than one before it um the, they use the 1990s as a reminder of how bad things can get and how bad things will be if you don't let the leaders do what they're doing, um, because the liberals will come back um, and they will ruin our culture and they'll ruin our economy. Um, so liberalism is a is a really easy target, and I think it's 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 going to be very hard for anyone calling themselves a liberal really to um, make any kind of uh, political to have any kind of political success in in, in Russia in the, in the foreseeable future. Uh, so to shift from the sort of the consumed, right, the media of conspiracy to the consumer, one of the key aspects you talk about is this uncritical view of the media as a pro producer of like a passively consumed product. You describe this as a zombified subject who's unwittingly mobilized through media messaging. So why is this construct important in conspiracy theory and why, um, according to your analysis, is it an inaccurate way of understanding media consumption? Sure. Well, um, it is a pretty common feature of a lot of conspiratorial um worldviews in the past several decades that is since the rise of the mass media to see in the mass media as um to see the mass media as the vehicle for um controlling people right um whether it's or or you know whether it's a matter of um people being afraid that some sort of electromagnetic waves are controlling their brains and they have to wear the, the tinfoil hats that we think of you know when we're talking about extreme um conspiracy theorists um there is i think um, part of it you could see as a kind of re reaction to the sort of networked world in which we live, that um, the autonomous subject is really um, harder and harder to give credit to, and that we're all influenced, and um, there are all these inputs, and so maybe um, something is undermining us, whether it's, you know, something like, whether it's fluoride in the water or um, subliminal messages in a movie, um, all of these things could be imagined to be um, ruining us. And um, in um, in the West, in particular, as as um, media criticism developed, the initial uh, approach to um, media was a propaganda model. That um, the assumption is, um, and I'm not even getting to Russia yet, but the assumption is that we watch 
we watch TV, we we listen to the radio, watch the music, and we are basically like this giant orifice. Everything comes in. We have no control of whatever it is, and and we receive the messages that are given to us. This is the media effect school. This is the hypodermic, on uh, the hypodermic model of of um, media influence. It is. It's been um, out of favor among media scholars for the past 50 years or more. Um, and the most productive work I've seen in media criticism, again, in the past 50 years, tends to talk about the ways in which people misunderstand, either deliberately or accidentally, misunderstand the messages that get to them, reappropriate the stories and make them something of their own. Um, that, in fact, you can't assume that the messages are getting through um, as they're meant to, so that the the consumer of media is always constructing meaning, meaning that may or may not coincide well or not at all with um, the intents of the people making the media. Um, so, um, however, um, when you do have media, in particular news media, where you can see the bias really, really easily, and I'm not, and this is not to argue that there's some sort of wonderful platonic news media out there that has no bias, but there are um, media outlets that are just so much more obviously slanted than, than ones that are not. One could argue that, the, that a media slant that is um, hidden might actually be more pernicious. Um, but the point is, if you know, um, if you have evidence, you can see that um, stories are being um, slanted, that a particular point of view is being um, put to the media, then you can assume this is what's happening all the time. And if you, and the, the zombification thing, and zombification is really just the Russian uh, the Russian metaphor that stand that is serves the same function as our metaphor of brainwashing. The zombification metaphor um, tends to assume not that you get zombified or that I get zombified by the media because I'm smart enough to know that the media have an influence and I can I can ward it off somehow. But the people you disapprove of, um, they're the, the people you disapprove of, the people who are wrong. Part of the reason they're wrong is that they are um, brainwashed or zombified by some media influence or some foreign influence that you think is is evil or pernicious. And this is what comes out most clearly um, in the conflict in Ukraine, where um, on Russian state television, they'll talk about people in Ukraine being zombified by the Ukrainian media. And on Ukrainian state television, they'll talk about people in Russia being zombified by the Russian state media. And of course, the irony is that just the moment you have a media outlet bringing up the possibility of media, media zombifying you, all you have to do is take one step back and think, well, this is what this media outlet could be doing too. Um, but the great thing about the zombification metaphor is how is how actually it usually doesn't work that way, and it allows you to dismiss someone else's views, um, but see yourself as somehow immune. Actually, in this discussion of Ukraine dovetails into another term that you present and critique, which is information war. And so uh, what is meant by information war specifically in this uh, situation between Ukraine and Russia? Well, information war... The so the idea behind information, we're both in Ukraine and, and, and Russia, and also when we're talking about the United States and Russia, is basically to assume that information is being weaponized, right? That information is being um, selected and carefully massaged, um, not just to tell you something that's not true, but to get you to, but to get you to take on a view or to do something that you would not do otherwise. So the assumption, this is like the next step in a kind of paranoid approach to your media inputs, that someone out there. Uh, Either someone out there is doing this, or you can do this to the other side, which is to um, to change the, in a sense, rearrange the furniture in their heads, right? Um, by um, broadcasting at them a certain set of um, a certain set of information that um, will will produce a particular reaction. 
Now, in the conclusion to your book, you briefly discuss, uh, of course, current Russian-American relations and the impact of the Trump presidency on Russian conspiratorial thinking. Uh, could you comment on that a little bit and how it influences uh, perceptions of Russian-American relations among sort of the populace as well? Yeah, um, this is one thing that was either really unfortunate or in a grim way fortunate for me as I was writing this book that this became way too relevant Um in a way that I'd never imagined. Um, but I, I, I have a very uh, limited imagination when it comes to the actual things that end up actually happening. Um, so as the whole Trump-Russia story uh, started to develop, um, that was one of the things that made me very aware of um, how vulnerable we all are when it comes to um, when it comes to positioning ourselves in terms of competing media narratives. If I could shift for a moment, um, to Ukraine again, to the um, downing of the Malaysian airliner. Um, that's and that will get me back to uh, to Trump, I promise. But when it came right down to it, I mean, I believe that it was a bunch of um, of uh, Russian supported Ukrainian idiots who shot down the wrong plane. All the initial um, social media stuff, everything, uh, totally made sense. I must admit that fits into my worldview, which sees accident and. Um, contingency is much more important than planning um, and made more sense than any other narrative. But when it comes right down to it, um, and it's a matter of, say, um, the Dutch report on what happened versus the um, Russian report on what happened, I'm not reading either of them. I'm not in any position to, to, um, to challenge the aeronautics explanations about any of these. And that what I realize happens is, you know, um, to use to, to use the Jewish expression, I've, I've picked my rabbi, right? Um, there, I there is a set of um, media sources that I trust more um, that also tend to align more with the way I see the world, and so um, I find them more credible. I don't find the um, Russian state um, explanations credible, but this does not really give me any kind of um, external positivist. Um, perfect way of adjudicating anything. So then Trump Russia comes along, right? And, um, you know, for once, you and I were all, everybody actually wants to hear what we think, which is kind of amazing. Like, who cares what we think about anything? Suddenly, um, for after, after the first time in years, people, people care what we think. And the funny thing is, my reaction is like, how the hell should I know if Trump was colluding with Russia, right? I mean, I don't have access to any information that anyone else has. Um, but any more information than anyone than anyone else has. Um, I'm not getting briefed. I'm not seeing secret documents. Um, all I can do is imagine is, is think about what makes sense based on what I know of Russia, what I know of the United States, what I imagine I know of, of Donald Trump, um, and come to some tentative conclusions. But once again, really, this is this is I think what makes one of the things that makes conspiracy not only appealing but almost impossible to fight um is that you know if someone let's if, let's say I'm, I'm i'm talking to someone who is, has a hardcore believer that you know um trump has been a russian asset since 1980 whatever um that always seemed extreme to me um i could make some arguments why i think that's probably not the case but really we're all just talking about stuff we don't really know um so with trump russia for a long time i've really felt that um it's, it's, it starts and finishes with um, what you already believe. Um, and that still continues even after the, um, even after the non-release of the Mueller report, right? Um, um, and this is sort of a classic Soviet-style moment of, of having this lack of information. Everybody's projecting a great deal on this almost 400-page document that we're not allowed to read. Um, and so, of course, we're all kind of paranoid, and of course we're seeing conspiracies. And in fact, you know, if you look at 
the non-release of the Mueller report and the four-page uh, write-up by a guy who already said that, tr- that the president couldn't possibly commit a crime while he's in office, this sure looks a lot like conspiracy. <laughs> Yeah, so it certainly goes to show that we are no less susceptible to these constructs than uh, anyone on the other side. Uh, So before we wrap up, could you tell us a bit about your current and upcoming projects? Oh, thank you. Yes, Um, I would love to because I'm much more interested in them than I am in this book now. Um, So the book I'm writing now, actually the series of books I'm writing now is the one that I thought I was writing before I started writing Plots Against Russia. It's now looking like it's, believe it or not, going to be a trilogy, a three-book series um each um with the title russia's alienation and then a different subtitle after that um they're all um explorations of um of a kind of sense of imagined identity and self after um the collapse of socialism so what i'm working on what i'm serializing now i'm just finishing up chapter one after doing the introduction um is the volume is called russia's alienations um imagining the other after socialism and it's exploring different um identities that are that pop up and are either assumed or projected onto some other um internal russian other that you might not like that then um, serve a function of of defining a sense of russia from the 1990s on so the first chapter is on savuk you know this notion of this kind of soviet hick the next chapter is on um the new russian um then there's a chapter on this weird online phenomenon of people identifying russians with orcs um and then there's going to be something about um, transnational adoption the second volume is going to involve um, time travel and alternate history, and the third volume is going to involve uh, what I call Soviet melancholy and um, discourses of um, of, of uh, Russianness um, as Russianness travels from place to place. Mm-hmm. That sounds fascinating, and your work is absolutely a gift to those of us who teach Russian media because students absolutely love it. Oh, thank you. Uh, uh, so, and where finally can our listeners find you on social media? On social media, so I'm most active on Facebook, where you just look up my name. But my Facebook feeds mm-hmm. into my Twitter, which I really um, largely neglect. It's just sort of automatic there. But um, on Twitter at Elliot Elliot B, that's E L I O T B two thousand and two, um, which is also one of my email addresses. And I'm on Facebook as Elliot Borenstein. Um, that's basically how you find me. No Instagram. Okay, fantastic. Well, we've been speaking with Dr. Elliot Bornstein, author of Plots Against Russia, Conspiracy and Fantasy After Socialism, now available via Cornell University Press. Elliot, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you today. Thank you. Well, thank you so much, Diana.